Thank you, Mark. Hey, one of the things uh, I love most about the Christmas season is the lights. I love the way the stage looks. I love driving through neighborhoods and uh, seeing the lights out in the yards. It's just really cool. In fact, you know, the very first words of God recorded in the Bible are these words, let there be light. Then in uh, John chapter 1, we find kind of which parallels to Genesis chapter 1, we find these words, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So what we find in the Bible is that uh, darkness often symbolizes things like sin and futility and striving and death, while light represents things like holiness, purity, beauty, and life. Now, uh, in the book of Isaiah, which is a book that actually gets quoted a lot this time of year, uh, God's people have been walking through a season of darkness and even death. Does that sound familiar to anyone? In the Bible, so, uh, yeah, as a result, they've, become, they've grown discouraged, they've become disillusioned, and in their disillusionment, they've even begun to seek counsel from spiritists and the occult, which has resulted in even greater darkness uh, in their nation. And it was even worse than this, because the king that was reigning at the time was a king by the name of Ahaz, and he was a wicked king, and he's about to set up a political alliance that's going to not only only send the nation spiraling into ruin, but it's even going to result in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And the survivors are going to be deported 500 miles away to the country of Babylon. And most of this is going to be due to the counsel of the king, King Ahaz. So when we're, we read in Isaiah that one of the names for the Messiah is going to be Wonderful Counselor, uh, it kind of adds new meaning to that, right? Um, so here's what Isaiah chapter 8 says uh, as he's prophesying about what's going to happen to God's people. This is in verse 22. He says, Then they will look toward the earth, and they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Darkness and death, death and darkness. Dude, thanks for the Christmas message, right? But that's what his message was. That's what's going on in the time of Isaiah. And so chapter 8 closes, and then chapter 9, the tone begins to change. Look at verse 2. This is actually in your outline. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So all of a sudden, the whole mood starts to shift, right? Isaiah says, sure, right now we're in a season of darkness and death, but those people walking in darkness won't always have to walk in darkness. One day, they will see a great light. And he goes, goes on to say, for those who even walk through the shadow of death, 
a light will dawn. In other words, he's saying this, God's light will push out the darkness of Ahaz. A season of light will replace this season of darkness. In other words, he's saying darkness isn't going to get the final word in our story. That's the prophecy of Isaiah 9. And make no mistake, friends, the darker the darkness, the brighter the light. The darker the darkness, the brighter the light. So he's saying, look, the foolish advice of Ahaz is going to be repelled and replaced by the wonderful counsel of Messiah. And I think about that verse. I think about that for them, and I think about that verse for you and for I. You know, those walking in darkness will see a great light. For those walking through even the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And I just wonder if you're here today, and that's maybe the sentence that you needed to hear. That was maybe the verse that you needed. Because if you were honest, uh, you know, many of us would confess that 2020 and 2021 has been, a, it's been a season with lots of darkness and even death. And like them, like they were walking in that season, we have been walking in a similar season. And it makes these words that we're going to land on that Jesus speaks that much more powerful and that much more profound. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's super important, but we'll come back to that. And here's what he said, I am the light of the world. He's not just the light of Christmas. He's the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, he speaks these words at something called the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast that was meant to commemorate the 40 years that God uh, took to lead his people, you know, through the wilderness, through the desert, as they were en route to the promised land. And one of the ceremonies involved in the Feast of Tabernacles was that the priests of the temple would take torches and there were these enormous candelabras all up and down the temple and they would light uh, all of these candelabras uh, uh, to demonstrate two things. First, to demonstrate that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles or a light to the world. So when Jesus stands next to these burning candles in the temple and says, I am the light of the world, they understand very clearly that Jesus is claiming to be that Messiah, that person that those lights were meant to to represent. Um, he is claiming, yeah, he's just saying, look, I'm that guy. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And the other thing that those candles were meant to represent was how God led his people through the wilderness or through the desert. And, and I want to read this verse to you because it's uh, 
really incredible. It says this, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So see, those lights also meant to serve as a reminder to God's people that he had led them and given them light in the darkness of the desert. So let me just ask you a question this morning. Who or what is guiding your life? I mean, who do you take counsel from? Because sometimes, friends, who or what you take counsel from impacts your whole life. It can make the dark darker. So what one of the things this tells us when you see the, uh, Jesus' statement about light uh, in the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles is that light gives direction. And Jesus' light guides accurately in a dark world. His guidance protects us from the bumps of bruises of darkness. How many of you have ever woken up in the middle of the night and on your way to do whatever it is you're going to do, you stub your toe, you, you hurt your shin, you take a fall, whatever. How many of us have ever fallen? Yeah, probably almost every one of us in the room, right? See, because darkness bring, often brings pain. It does, right? It, a stubbed toe, a, it could, you know, a fall, a break, whatever. Darkness often brings pain. This is what makes Jesus' statement so powerful and so amazing because he provides a light that guides. He provides a light that guides. So as Messiah, as the light of the world, light is guidance. And the second thing we see is that light is protection. It's protection. We see this in the same story from uh, related to the Feast of Tabernacles. See, the desert wilderness uh, that the people walked through, it was desolate, it was dangerous, and it was scary to them. But not only did they have to follow the pillar of cloud and fire, but they had to trust God for their protection uh, and provision on that journey. I mean, during the day, there was not only the intense heat of a desert, but there were snakes, there were scorpions, there was a lack of food and water. And while nighttime certainly offered some relief, uh, it also brought darkness and cold that were equally as dangerous. But as long as God's people stayed near to that pillar of fire, the closer to that pillar they grew, the warmer they became. It was provision and protection. It was protection against things that they couldn't see in the dark and couldn't see at night. God was their light. God was their way. And so as the light of the world, Jesus offers the same kind of protection. Not only does he protect you and I, friends, from the searing heat of a holy law and a guilty conscience, but also from the darkness and uh, just the cold of a fallen world. Uh, you know, um, sometimes when we go on vacation, one of the things we like to do, especially if we're near one on the coast, is we like to go and visit uh, lighthouses uh, we like to take pictures of lighthouses. Most of us think that lighthouses are quaint, but they weren't always thought 
to be quaint, for hundreds of years, lighthouses served a, a, vital, uh, a vital and a powerful purpose in that they served as protection for ships, right? It, against things like hidden reefs or uh, sharp rocks or hidden coastline, lighthouses directed those boat captains through danger. And while because of you know, modern navigation we no longer need those, uh, they were incredibly powerful uh, tools for protection that saved hundreds and hundreds of lives over many, many centuries. So light is protection, it's guidance, but also we need to think of light as nourishment, Light as nourishment. You know, when you bring a plant into your home, one of the things that plant has to have to live is light. When you plant a garden in the spring, unless that garden gets some light, you're not going to grow anything good in that garden. Light means growth and nourishment, especially when you're talking about plants. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm the vine and you're the branches, uh, he is pointing to this idea. So I'm wondering, how many of you know the guidance, know the protection, and know the nourishment of Jesus? So you may say, well, you know, I want Jesus as this light. How do I get it? Well, you get it by following him, by staying close to him by living out of his provision, out of his nourishment, out of his guidance every single day. In fact, I want you to know what the Bible says happens to men and women, ordinary people, when they make that decision. Look what 1 Thessalonians 5 5 says You are all sons of the light and of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. This is a beautiful thing. In other words, when we're placed in the family of God, we don't just get to simply reflect the light of Jesus. We become his light. We become the light of Jesus to others as sons and daughters of the light. This means that because of Jesus, friends, our dawn is not in some future day. Our dawn is right now. Our dawn is this day, today, and every day that we get to follow him. Because of Jesus, light is not simply something we reflect. It's something that we become. Light, sons and daughters of light, is what we are. It is who we are. It becomes part of our identity. And it's so important to get this. And this is why Jesus said these amazing words that Mark read earlier. You are the light of the world. It isn't just that Jesus came into the world as a light. He came to pass that light on to you and to me. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. What this means, friends, is that you are meant to be a light to the people you will go home to today. You are meant to be a light to the people you will go to work with tomorrow. You are meant to be a light to the people that you go to school with. You are meant to be a light to the people that, uh, that you enjoy life with. 
In all those settings, in all those ways, you and I are meant to be a light. And then Jesus goes on and says this, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Listen, I don't know how you think of yourself, but when Jesus looks at you, he sees the light of the world. When Jesus looks at you, he sees sons and daughters of light. And in the the same way that a city on a hill can't be hidden from view, especially in the dark, right? Your good deeds are meant to shine out to the glory of God. I want to show you uh, some things. So uh, check out this city. This is a picture of Aspen. Colorado. It's beautiful, isn't it? But this picture has nothing on what Aspen, Colorado looks like at night as a city on a hill. Let's look at that. Isn't that beautiful? See, cities just take on a new vibe, don't they? In the light. There's something about light that's inspiring. There's something about light that's uh, encouraging. Here's another one. So this is uh, Clifton Mill in Clifton Falls, Ohio. And every year they put on a a, a Christmas uh, scene. (laughs) I I made that way harder than I should have. So, yeah, but look at that at night. Isn't that amazing? Look, same mill. I mean, it's beautiful during the day, but, man, it just pops at night. And then finally, one more. This is a, my, I have a brother that lives in Denver, Colorado. This is actually the Denver courthouse. Pretty standard stuff for courthouses, right? But at Christmas, they do it upright. And here's what it looks like at night. Light is inspiring. It's meant to be inspiring. So what did Jesus mean when he said, you know, hey, I, I want you to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. What kind of deeds is Jesus talking about? And why would these deeds uh, give glory to God or bring glory to him? Why, why would these deeds do that? And um, here's, what, here's how I want to answer that question, and I'll prove it in a moment. But I believe what these good deeds are meant to represent. So, so all of us so on Sunday, when we come to church, right, we worship God and we worship vertically. But when we, when we love the men and women that are, are in our lives, we worship horizontally. And so the reason that men are going to see these good deeds and glorify God is because these are deeds all centered around loving other people, loving and serving other people. And I can prove it. I can prove it because it's exactly what the Bible teaches. And this is where our teaching starts to get very, very practical. Look at how John uh, said this. Again, Mark read these words a little earlier. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not even know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, something that's important to note here is John says it's possible to to think that you're in the light, but really be walking in darkness. How? Based on what? Our relationships to other people, whether we're demonstrating a love for others or a hatred of others. Now, uh, why would John say this? This is such a powerful testimony. Whoever loves his brother is in the light. Why would he say that? Well, because he was in the room with Jesus when Jesus was initiating a brand new covenant. And here's the covenant that Jesus came to initiate. He said this, A new command I give you, love one another. Now, that command wasn't new in and of itself. What made it new was the way that Jesus called these early disciples to love one another. He said, he said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. So I want you to notice that this is a raise the bar kind of love. Jesus isn't asking us to love other people the way that we would want to be loved. He's asking us to love other people the way that he has loved and served us. And listen, friends, that love cost him everything. He withheld nothing from you and I as an act of love. He put it all on the table, everything that he had, and he bled to make that happen. And that's the kind of love that Jesus is calling us, you and I, to have for one another. So John was in that room. He heard those words. And as he reflected on that commandment and how important it was, he uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sure, but he uses the, this analogy of light and dark to drive it home. Uh, most of you probably have heard this, but you know, in the Bible, there are three kinds of love. There's phileo love. Um, think Philadelphia, the city of what? Yeah, brotherly love, but that's not the word Jesus uses here. Then there's uh, uh, eros love, that's uh, sexual love, intimate love, physical love. And then there's agape love, which is unconditional love, the love of God. And that's the love Jesus puts in here. We are to love other people unconditionally in the same way that God has loved us. So uh, John just elaborates on this command in terms of darkness and light. Love is, to love is to live in the light, and to hate is to live in the in the darkness. Hatred blinds us. It causes us to stumble. So a few years back, um, we went uh, to, I believe it was Branson, Missouri, and one of the things we did while we were there was we took a tour of a cave in that area. We saw, I mean, it was incredible. We saw gorgeous rock formations, incredible colors, amazingly large stalactites and stalagmites. Aren't you impressed that I worked those words into a sermon? 
When we reached the deepest part of the cave, the guide had us all stop and kind of hold on to each other. Remember, this was pre-COVID. It was okay then, right? And so we're, uh, we're all holding each other in a big group, touching each other, and then the guide just turns off the lights. We were instantly surrounded by absolute darkness. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. No one dared move a step in any direction because all those beautiful things that used to be beautiful rock formations were now dangerous and they were sharp things that could cause harm or even death, right? See, with light, that cave was a beautiful place to be. But without light, it became simply dark and dangerous. In fact, the rock formations that we saw, those amazing colors of that cave that we saw, um, they, they, they were only beautiful and colorful because of the light. So listen, friends, here's my point. Without Jesus, who is, make no mistake about it, the light of the world, our world would simply be a dark and a dangerous place. But because His light shines in the darkness, the world is a far brighter and more colorful place. It's a safer place for you and me. And again, make no mistake, the darker the darkness, the brighter the light. And it's never been more important than it is today for for us to be the sons and daughters of light that God tells us that we are. But there's some things that can get in the way. Things that mirror hatred or look a lot like hatred. And um, I want us to close with this verse. We'll think about it for a few minutes. This is Philippians chapter 2. Here's what Paul said. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, sons and daughters of the light, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. You could say in a very, very dark world. And then these amazing words, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Isn't that beautiful? You and I, you are meant to shine like stars in the universe. You're meant for that. This is part of your legacy. It's part of... uh, who you're supposed to be. But Paul also warns us against two things that condemn that light, that can conceal that light, the light of Christ within us. And the first one is this, complaining. And the second is arguing. And, but why would, he, why would he argue that we should avoid those two things in particular? Well, well, one reason is, well, because the world just complains and the world argues. See, here's what makes complaint such a big deal. Complaint, when I do it, when you do it, ignores the grace, the kindness, the mercy, and the love of God. It just ignores all of that. It is an affront to God's sovereignty in your life and in mine. So parents, 
How many of you just get a kick out of it when your kids complain? Yeah, yeah, no hands are up, right? Uh, why? Why is complaint from our children so incredibly discouraging and even uh, frustrating for you as a parent? You know the answer, right? Because it ignores all the good things that you've done to try to to provide for them and give to them. Uh, It ignores all that you've done for them. In the same way, friends, as our Heavenly Father, when we complain, we're ignoring His grace, His provision, His mercy, His goodness at the expense of complaint. I mean, complaint ignores all the good things in our life that God has given to us, that God has provided for us. And I'll tell you a final thing. Complaint, the reason it dims the light of Christ within us is because it hinders our witness to the world. I mean, who wants to be around somebody who complains all the time? who live in what uh, some one author called a culture of complaint. In fact, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, Among those sins most exquisitely fitted to injure the soul and destroy our testimony, few can equal the sin of complaining. Complainers are what he calls missionaries of misery. Missionaries of misery. So there was a monk who joined a monastery, and he took a vow of silence. But every 10 years, he was allowed to speak two words that were in his heart. So after the first 10 years of service, his superior called him in, and he asked him, Hey, do you have anything to say? And the monk said two words, food, bad. So he goes back to his duties. After another 10 years, the monk again had the opportunity to come in and voice his thoughts to his superior. And here's the two words he chose, bed hard. So then he goes back at it for another 10 years. Uh, So again, he's called into his superior. And when he's asked if he has anything to say, he says, I quit. To which the superior responded, that doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain the last 30 years. This is why Mark Twain said, don't complain and talk about all of your problems. 80% of people don't care, and the other 20% will think you deserve them. See, complaint hinders our witness because it points people in the wrong direction. Now, so that's complaint, but then he goes to arguing. Why would he he pick up on something that um, we're prone to do almost every day with someone, right? Why do, think about it, why do people argue? Well, here's here's my point. I think arguing ignores the law of love. It is actually the opposite of love because when we argue, we are failing to love others, instead insisting that they love and serve us. Think about it. James said it this way. He said that the reason we argue with one another is because we want to get our own way. We have selfish desires that we want to get met. See, so when I'm arguing, most of the time when I'm arguing with somebody, I'm trying to assert 
the importance of my will over their will. See, it makes my needs more important than your needs, which is the exact opposite of love. Arguing clouds our witness because it is unloving. It dulls, it dims the light of Christ within us. And friends, you know this, but it's never been more important for the church to be sons and daughters of light. When God looks at you, I don't know what you see when you look in a mirror, but I know this, when God looks at you, He sees the light of the world. And we have to be that light. We have to be. And you know why? Because we live in a really dark and dangerous world right now. And you don't have to look much further than this week's headlines. You don't have to look much further than yesterday's news to be reminded of that truth. That means now is the time to be children of light. Sons and daughters of light is what we are. You know, I mentioned earlier that one of the things I love about Christmas is lights. But you know what? what's truly amazing, whether you're driving through a neighborhood, whether you're walking into somebody's living room, what really makes lights pop is when you start to put them together. You know, when, when, you, when you get a, a bunch of lights in one place, friends, that's what our city is meant to see, a bunch of lights all gathered in one place, a bunch of lights shining out into the darkness. That's what our culture needs to see. Now listen, you may never be powerful or famous, You might not even think of yourself as a hero. You may never make a fortune on Wall Street or star uh, on television or in the movies, but you can still be exactly who and what God wants you to be. You can be the light of the world because the light of Jesus shines within you. You know, one of my favorite illustrations about this, I've I've used it before, is the moon. You know, when you see a full moon at night, the moon's not generating any light of its own. Do you know what it's doing? It's reflecting back to earth the light of the sun. In the same way that you and I are meant to reflect out into our culture the light of the Son of God that you and I follow. You and I are meant to be that. Don't shrink back from it. So what am I saying? How do you be a light? You love well. You love often. You serve. You give your life away in order to bring value to other people. You're bringing value. I heard John Maxwell talk about and use that phrase, and I love that phrase, that, that our job every single day is to add value to someone else's life. Every day. You know, sometimes I bump into people and they'll say, well, you know, I'm still around. I don't know why. I guess God still has a purpose for me. And, and I always want to push back against this idea that God keeps people around for some giant overarching purpose. Do you know what your purpose is today, right now, here and now? To love well. 
to add value to other human beings. And that's not a one-time deal. That's a grand, glorious purpose that's worth getting out of bed for every single day. Every single day. That's what you're here for, to add value to other people in the name of Jesus, to give yourself away for them in the same way that he has given himself up for you. I want to tell you a story about this in my own life. So most of you know my, my dad passed away uh, last summer, and uh, when he passed away, there, there were no arrangements. My stepmom uh, couldn't care for herself. My, my father was her primary caregiver, and when he died, she literally couldn't do anything for herself. So when he died, it created a need for me to go back and forth to West Virginia to try to make sure that my stepmom was being taken care of. And on one of those trips, generally I was okay doing it, but on one of those trips, I just had a terrible attitude about it. I mean, I was complaining, you know, I was droning on and on to God. God, why did this have to become my problem? You know, why didn't they think this through? You know, on and on, I'm complaining, right? And just going through my laundry list of why this was so hard. And then I heard God's voice. And God said to me, I want you to pour yourself out for her in the next two days. That's how long I was going to be there. I want you to pour yourself out for her in the same way that I've poured myself out for you. And I knew that if I failed in that assignment, I could never teach on servanthood or love ever again. Because I'd be like the biggest hypocrite on the, in the world, right? To stand up and tell you how vital and important it is to love people when I just resented having to love someone. Make no mistake about it. Loving other people will be the single hardest thing you do every single day. This is not a hallmark, mushy, gushy sentiment this is a dirtying of your hands, making other people's lives better. And, it, and you, you want to know why it's so hard? Because it works against our self-interest. The one interest that we all have in common and share is self-interest. See, in order to add value to someone else's life, I have to take value away from my life. I have to give up some of my time. I have to give up some of my comfort. I have to give up some of my uh, sweat equity on behalf of someone else. And it just fights against human nature. So what's it going to be? Because you are the light of the world. So shine. Love well. Let me pray that for you and me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us love others well this week. Not in a hallmark, gushy, mushy, sentimental kind of way, but in a way that's gritty and in a way that takes away from our own comfort and takes away from our own desire to be served. 
And Lord, I just thank you for your son, how he modeled this for us so well, because he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many. So Lord Jesus, make us a people that are willing to give our lives away a little, little bit every single day in order to add value to others and to glorify your name. Because at the end of the day, Lord, people will see that and they will praise and glorify you. And Lord, we hunger, we yearn, we thirst for that. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. So may you leave in the light that is Jesus. And may you be that light this week for others. God bless you guys. I love serving with you. Had a couple of uh, quick announcements. Number one, remember that next Sunday, the day after Christmas, we have two Christmas Eve services next Friday night at four and six. And we're only doing one service uh, next week or next Sunday. uh, And that's the 11 a.m. service. So if you show up here at 9, you're probably good because you're here at 11, right? So you clearly prefer this service. But if you show up at 9, nobody will be here to, to, to let you in. So just be aware of that as well. We hope you guys have an amazing Christmas. We look forward to worshiping with you on Christmas Eve. If you can stick around and help us stack chairs, that would be amazing. God bless you guys.